Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 100. I guess that's a bit of a milestone. You're supposed to celebrate something like that? It just kind of snuck up on me. Actually, it might be more than 100 since I've released some specials and two-part episodes. In a way, it's kind of depressing. I can't believe how quickly time flies by. I've already been doing the show for roughly two years. On the other hand, it's been a pretty good ride so far. The podcast has provided me with an outlet so I can share my thoughts. And I'm very thankful for how well the show has been received and for all the positive feedback and encouragement you guys have given me. So I guess, why be crestfallen? Um, So let's take care of the shoutouts and get on with the show. Wow, something actually just occurred to me. I think I remember... When I hit the 50-episode mark, I said I was going to keep going with the show, and when I hit episode 100, I would reevaluate things and see if it made sense to continue. And I think it does. I don't have any plans to quit anytime soon, so maybe now I'll set the next goalpost at, no, not 200, 300 episodes. When I hit 300 episodes, I'll reevaluate things again. Uh, I love hearing myself talk, and I never run out of... um, fodder for discussion. So on with the shoutouts. I'd like to thank the following people for following the show on Twitter. The Secular Advisor, in great tagline, after the rapture, can I have your car? Awesome. Um, the Heathen Advocate, Godfrey Freeman, Todd Gillette, Atheist Center, Sam Tweeter, Eighth 88ist, <laughs> a creative way of saying atheist, I believe, Atheopteryx, um, Mary Browder, and Deep South Athe. Uh, Mary Browder, I'd like to give special thanks to. She actually sent out a couple of tweets recently um, mentioning me to at Brian Dunning and at Penn Gillette. I hope I got their um, Twitter handles correct. But obviously, Brian Dunning, uh, the host of Skeptoid, and another one of uh, my favorite high-profile skeptics, Penn Gillette. Penn not only a skeptic, but a proud atheist as well. She asked them both on Twitter if they've ever heard of or listened to my podcast, and she even suggested that I might be the next Brian Dunning. I'll take that as a compliment. Um, Skeptoid was one of the very first podcasts I'd ever listened to, and I still listen to it to this day. If you want to hear someone logically dismantle um, popular misconceptions, myths, and fallacies, uh, Brian Dunning's Skeptoid is a great podcast. And If you don't already listen to it, you should check it out. I think Mary's supposed to be meeting up uh, with Penn Gillette soon, and she's actually friends with Brian. I hope she doesn't mind me saying that. Um, she even offered to get me Penn's autograph, which is pretty cool. But uh, so a special shout out to uh, Mary Browder. Thank you very much. Okay, so on to the first topic. A week or two back, I almost did a story on Matthew McConaughey's acceptance speech, which made the online news due to its rather religious tone. Like many um, popular musicians or athletes, he did the old I'd like to thank God type of thing. But he went even further and kind of really explored how seriously he takes his faith. He even told an anecdote about how, when he was a child, his mother overheard someone address him as Matt, 
and she told him, and I'm paraphrasing, don't ever respond to the name Matt again. Your name is Matthew. And as he put it, you know, in quotes, I named you after the Bible. Well, if he was named after the Bible, his name would be Bible or the Bible. But uh, I know what she's talking about. Um, Matthew, the evangelist, obviously. I'm just being a wise ass. And I remember I was a little bummed out. And I always get mad at myself or feel like a heel um, when I have a negative reaction to finding out someone that I kind of admire is a uh, person of faith. I know technically it, it shouldn't matter. But then again, I think we can learn something about someone by their core beliefs, by their worldview, by their uh, religious beliefs or lack thereof. I went through something similar when I kind of half-jokingly um, quite a bit ago on the show, talked about how I was kind of bummed when I found out that the lead singer, uh, Brandon Flowers, I think it is, of The Killers, was a Mormon. And when I found out that Beck was a Scientologist. Um, but eventually I came around and, and uh, my basic conclusion was, hey, if I dig their music, I dig their music. I mean, it is kind of weird because on the one hand, you know, I look at these people who make this great music, who seem like smart, creative individuals with a unique way of looking at things. And then on the other hand, when I hear that they're religious, especially if I hear that they embrace um, what I consider newer and more questionable religions, like Mormonism founded by Joseph Smith, who um, I, without hesitation, like to refer to as a con man, or Scientology, um, created by perhaps an even bigger con man, uh, L. Ron Hubbard. Parmi says, how on the one hand can this person be a, a brilliant artist and seemingly, you know, a free thinker, a free spirit, and then also be shackled by dogma and superstition and um, exhibit what I view as tremendous gullibility to believe in what I view as inane doctrines. But I think in the case of both Brandon Flowers and Beck, I think they were both raised into their faiths. Um, it's not like when later in life when Glenn Beck decided to become a Mormon. And I'm like, out of all the religions you could choose, you choose the one that has the story about some dude in the 19th century finding magical plates in upstate New York inscribed with a language supposedly called Reformed Egyptian that archaeologists don't even recognize as an actual language, um, bo a belief about Native Americans being a lost tribe of Israel and all this other nonsense. Um, like, really, that's the one you're going to believe. That's the one you're going to choose. So I can have more sympathy for someone who is raised religious. It's probably harder to throw off the shackles uh, in that sense when you were indoctrinated at an early age. So anyway, it kind of affected the way I looked at Matthew McConaughey a little. And then, under advisement from a friend, I decided to watch the uh, TV series True Detective. I think it's HBO. He has an HBO series. I think it is. And I was blown away. And um, Matthew McConaughey's acting was so good that I was like, I don't care what you believe in, man. You are a great actor. And the funny thing is, in True Detective... He plays this um, cop who's a, a pessimist, who's uh, pretty much what you would call an existential nihilist. 
just the most um, irreligious, cynical worldview you could imagine. And it's funny. I know it's acting and they get paid to pretend there be someone they're not. But still, I was just kind of struck by the juxtaposition of Matthew McConaughey, person of faith, and uh, his true detective character, Rustin Cole, who's kind of like this raging nihilist. Um, and just for fun, I actually made a little audio clip from one of the episodes so I can give you an example of uh, the type of dialogue that comes out of his character's mouth. Ask you something. You're Christian, yeah? No. I'd consider myself a realist, all right? But in philosophical terms, I'm what's called a pessimist. I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. Well, that sounds god-fucking-awful, Rust. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self. This accretion of sensory experience and feeling. Programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody. When in fact, everybody's nobody. I wouldn't go around spouting that shit I was you. People around here don't think that way. I don't think that way. I think the honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming. Stop reproducing. Walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. So, what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning? I tell myself I bear witness. The real answer is that it's obviously my programming. And I lack the constitution for suicide. So pretty dark, right? It almost made me wonder, and this is just fun speculation, um... If part of the reason for his God acceptance speech was so he could say, don't worry, folks, I'm not an atheist. I just play one on TV. And I apologize for not warning you in advance that there was an F-bomb in there. I actually forgot. I know some of my listeners do have sensitive ears. Uh, I remember this really nice lady who reviewed the show. I think one of the first people to leave a review on iTunes. I'm not sure if she was a believer or not. But she actually kind of applauded me for not cursing or spewing gratuitous vulgarities like she thought some other uh, skeptical or atheist host tended to do. So I, I try to keep the swearing to a minimum, which is good, too, because I want the show to be about my thoughts and ideas, not about superficial shock value. But it's funny, when I first heard that dialogue in that True Detective clip I just played when I, when I first watched that episode, I was like, hey, they stole one of my ideas. Uh, not that I literally believe they stole an idea from me, but there's this philosophical notion that I've had knocking around in my head for a long time. But obviously, just because a thought occurs to you on your own doesn't mean you're the first person ever thinking. But when he talks about consciousness being a tragic misstep in evolution, I remember a thought occurred to me years back that that maybe self-awareness, in a sense, 
um, was kind of a, a mistake of evolution. Uh, and mistake sounds weird because, once again, it sounds like you're talking about some kind of set plan, um, maybe even some kind of guided process. But the idea occurred to me that perhaps self-awareness uh, is really just a byproduct of evolution because our brains had become too advanced for their own good. And that, generally speaking, the purpose of biological life is to stay alive long enough to perpetuate the species. We're almost vehicles for genetic information. You know, just live long enough to pass on your genes to the next generation. And that you don't really need self-awareness to do that. Maybe so much of the downside of the human condition, all the angst, hand-wringing, um, you know, shaking your fists at the heavens, contemplating your own navel, stuff like that. It's all just a, an accident of uh, evolution. But that being said, I might be a skeptic, but uh, I'm not necessarily a pessimist. Hopefully I don't sound as grim as uh, Matthew McConaughey's character. I actually think we have to do our best to cultivate a positive outlook because if you walk around being negative all the time, and I know from personal experience, you'll just drive yourself nuts. Consciousness may be um, a misstep, uh, an accident, um, a byproduct of evolution. doesn't necessarily have to have a negative connotation. Um, but however consciousness came to be, we have it. We're aware of our own existence. So why be negative? Uh, however we came to be conscious, we might as well try to make the best of it and enjoy life while we have it. And actually, while I'm at it, why don't I give the uh, full definition of pessimism um, as found in the uh, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary? An inclination to emphasize adverse aspects, conditions, and possibilities, or to expect the worst possible outcome. 2. The doctrine that reality is essentially evil. B. The doctrine that evil overbalances happiness in life. I actually don't think that any of those definitions actually apply to me. Uh, maybe in a limited sense, definition one, where it says um, expecting the worst possible outcome or emphasizing adverse possibilities. So maybe in a sense, you could say that I'm a pessimist when it comes to religion or belief in an afterlife or something like that. Because not only does my logic tell me, uh, my sense of reason, that religions are man-made, uh, therefore we shouldn't trust their supernatural claims. But there's also a certain too-good-to-be-true type of uh, assumption that I, I work under, too, that there's no real empirical evidence for eternal life, and it sounds like one of those things that's probably too good to be true. Uh, if you could provide evidence for it, that would be a different matter. Um, so maybe in that sense you could say I'm a pessimist. Um, but do I believe reality is essentially evil? No. Well, on the one hand, because I think evil is obviously a value judgment. You know, I've talked about morality a lot on the show and how I, I do believe that we are moral creatures. Uh, well, we're a mixed bag. I think we have the propensity for compassion and empathy, but we also have the propensity for violence and uh, tribalism. And I think our sense of morality actually has evolutionary roots. Sometimes the behavior of animals can shock our moral sensibilities. 
But oftentimes, too, we see examples of altruism, examples of kind of quid pro quo behavior. Literally, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, you know, the way apes groom each other and things like that. We see um, strong examples of the maternal instinct in the uh, animal world. So I do think that uh, morality is kind of a emergent property of uh, evolution. So I think all of us get caught up in value judgments to some degree of right and wrong, even good and evil. I often hesitate to use the word evil because it has spiritual connotations, I think. But even I use that word sometimes when referring to the most heinous of uh, human acts or atrocities. But I don't think that life is essentially evil. Uh, I think life is a mixed bag. Um, all of us have had negative and positive experiences. All of us can think about things that bring us joy or that we would quantify as good. And all of us can think about things we dislike, things that cause us discomfort or pain. So I think life's a mixed bag. I, if I had to put a, um, a label on it, I, I would probably say that I believe life is uh, essentially good. If you think about things like the beauty of nature, just the astounding fact that we even exist at all, um, the ability to contemplate, to create, um, the ability to have meaningful interactions with uh, other people. I genuinely do think that life is a good thing. I might be a skeptic. I might essentially be an atheist. I usually try to eschew labels. The best label that I think fits me is um, that semi-confusing label, uh, agnostic atheist. Agnostic because I believe you can't definitively prove whether there is or isn't a god, but um, atheistic because I strongly doubt the existence of a god, especially a personal uh, god, and um, I doubt the existence of an afterlife. And so I, I sometimes feel like skepticism gets a bum rap. People think of skepticism as being inherently negative, but I think you can be skeptical and feel like you need empirical evidence uh, before you will believe in a, a claim. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily have a negative worldview. You can be a happy person. You can be a person that enjoys life, that relishes life, but who's intelligent enough to realize you shouldn't believe something without evidence. And then there's that third definition about uh, the doctrine that evil overbalances happiness in life. I think that depends on the individual. And this is probably another one of my personal reasons why I doubt the existence of a uh, God, especially a good God, um, is that life can be unjust and that happiness and justice aren't meted out proportionally or... or um, properly. Good might seem to overbalance evil um, for someone that lives a comfortable life where basically all their needs are met, they have access to um, the resources they need to live a comfortable life, etc. But for um, 
someone suffering from famine or someone living under a dictatorial regime or uh, living in a concentration camp, the uh, evil probably seems to outweigh the good, I would imagine. So I think that's a, a matter of circumstance and uh, perspective. Um, in my own life, I've wrestled with depression, anxiety, um, been through the whole tortured artist bit, you know what I mean? So um, I still have my dark moments, but generally for me at least, I think the good outweighs the evil or that um, or that the positive aspects of life outweigh the negative. Okay, I think I mentioned existential nihilism in passing too. And here's a definition of that I like from Wikipedia. I know you're not supposed to quote Wikipedia, but I'm not writing a school paper and it's my podcast. So I'll do what I want. <laughs> okay. Existential nihilism is the philosophical theory that life has no intrinsic meaning or value. With respect to the universe, existential nihilism posits that a single human or even the entire human species is insignificant, without purpose, and unlikely to change in the totality of existence. According to the theory, each individual is an isolated being born into the universe, barred from knowing why, yet compelled to invent meaning. The inherent meaninglessness of life is largely explored in the philosophical school of existentialism, where one can potentially create his or her own subjective meaning or purpose. Of all types of nihilism, existential nihilism gets the most literary and philosophical attention. That's a tough one. I think nihilism has such a negative connotation that I hesitate to want to identify as one, but some of that definition actually resonates with me when it talks about life not having intrinsic value. I think that's something that we as non-believers um, sometimes have to wrestle with a bit. I personally believe that life has meaning, but as a non-believer, as someone who has a Darwinian worldview, at least in regard to our biological origins. Um, I've spoken before on the show how I'm anti-social Darwinism, that type of uh, Wall Street, Ayn Rand, survival of the fittest type of thing. Um, I find all of that to be rather cruel and distasteful. And I, I think I'm in the same camp as Richard Dawkins with that, where Richard Dawkins has said, you know, as a... Um, scientist, he embraces biological Darwinism, uh, but as a human being, he finds social Darwinism uh, repugnant. So as a non-believer who doesn't believe, or at least doubts the existence of a higher power, doesn't believe in a personal God, um, if there was no creator to instill some kind of divine purpose in us, then why get out of bed in the morning? Why put one foot in front of the other? Um, what does it all mean? Well, as I was alluding to before, I believe that morality is real. I, I think it most likely has its has evolutionary roots. But I believe that as uh, the late Christopher Hitchens used to talk about, you know, I believe in human solidarity, things like friendship, finding meaning and in interacting with others, finding meaning in uh, kind of as Joseph, Joseph Campbell would say, following your bliss. Um, 
I spoke about how, or just a little bit ago, about how I believe the good outweighs the bad, at least from my personal point of view. And I think there's plenty of things in life to take pleasure in or that give one's life a sense of meaning. I think for me, things like the pursuit of knowledge, um, expressing my creativity, connecting with others like I'm doing with you, the audience right now, family, friends, uh, my chihuahua, uh, <laughs> you know, making music, uh, stuff like that. Um, just enjoying nature, you know, enjoying existence. Uh, I think all that stuff gives life meaning. Um, is there an inherent or intrinsic meaning to life? Um, some kind of objective, incontrovertible uh, meaning? Um, I don't know. I, I'm not a scientist, but uh, when I listen to scientists talk, whether it's Richard Dawkins, and Richard Dawkins isn't just simply an atheist, he's also an evolutionary biologist, or if I listen to um, Neil deGrasse Tyson or, you know, the late Carl Sagan, you can hear the passion, the love of learning in their voice, you know, when they talk about science and when they talk about the natural world or um space uh, cosmology etc i think just the fact that life exists and that we have the awareness to study it it's somehow that to me almost inherently gives life meaning but but i think um not to sugarcoat things too much maybe in keeping with the uh existential nihilistic point of view that if you don't believe that there's a creator or some divine source, then ergo, you might have to concede that, yeah, to some degree, it's up to the individual to um, try to determine what the meaning of their own existence is or what the meaning of life and the existence of others is. Um, but to some degree, I think even I talked about how I believe morality has... Uh, evolutionary roots. Um, so I think we're wired to feel uh, compassion, empathy. We're wired to feel a kind of hunger to connect with others. And I think that kind of, that wiring also determines what the meaning of life is. We're almost geared to uh, want to seek out meaningful interaction with others and uh, whatnot. Uh, I know I'm probably rambling just a little bit more on this subject. I know one argument you'll often hear believers or Christian apologists use is that if there is no God, then life has no meaning. As Woody Harrelson's character in that True Detective clip said, uh, and as Ken Ham recently said to Bill Nye in the debate, why bother getting out of bed in the morning? And as I said recently, I believe that's a childish argument. And in fairness and full disclosure, it's one I used before. Um, when I was in like my late teens, early 20s, and I was really going through a tough, dark night of the soul. Um, at the time, I probably considered myself merely agnostic, but I really I doubted the validity of the religion I was brought up in. Um, 
doubted the supernatural claims of that religion. Uh, I doubted the existence of a God in an afterlife. And yet, uh, kind of like Matthew McConaughey's uh, character, um, I was probably something of a pessimist and an existential nihilist, and I was miserable. On the one hand, my reason had led me to doubt the existence of God, uh, but on the other hand, I couldn't see how there could be meaning without God. And I was kind of a miserable little bastard. Uh, Sorry for the swear. I couldn't think how else to uh, coin it. I almost said prick, but I went with bastard. Um, And... I got into a philosophical discussion in the parking lot with uh, a bandmate at the time. Um, This kid, uh, I don't think he'd mind if I would say his name, uh, a friend of mine, and as I just said, a bandmate uh, by the name of Rusty. And a really good kid, um, probably wise beyond his years, intelligent, good-natured. And I said something in this kind of angst-ridden kind of way, uh, how I thought if there was no God, which I actually felt was the case, still do, uh, but if there was no God, then life would have no meaning. And he said um, almost indignantly, you know, basically paraphrasing, what are you talking about? Of course life has meaning. Um, And at the time, I was put off by his attitude. I almost thought he was like being arrogant or derisive or something like that. But in retrospect, I see that he had strong beliefs, dare I say strong moral beliefs, that life does have value, life has meaning, and uh, it possesses that meaning whether or not there's a God. And it took me a while, but, you know, down the road, that made sense to me, and that conversation has always stuck with me. And I think another reason why it's a uh, kind of weak or childish argument that if there is no God, life has no meaning, it's kind of one of those things like, well, what are you going to do about it? Um, Let's say it is the case that, as we argue, there's most likely no personal creator, and the only value life has is what we attribute to it. Well... It's kind of like tough luck. What are you going to do? Just because that idea disturbs you doesn't necessarily mean that it's not true. And sometimes it seems like uh, believers will use that argument as if it vindicates their position or if it magically reaffirms that there is a God, that the idea of life not having intrinsic meaning is so horrific or unthinkable that the contrary must be true. There must be a God who lends life its meaning. Just because you want something to be true doesn't mean that it is true. Worst case scenario, there is no God, um, there is no intrinsic meaning. As I said before, whether it's through our evolutionary impulses, our sense of solidarity, whether it's through the things that we decide for ourselves uh, give life meaning, Like I was talking about art, friendship, creativity, uh, love of nature, love of learning. Worst case scenario, um, and and it's up to us to give life meaning. Well, here we are, for better or worse. We exist. Might as well try to make the most out of it and uh, be positive and, um, you know, just 
try to be good and productive. We could all hide underneath the covers, but life probably wouldn't be as much fun that way. Uh, well, it depends if someone's under the covers with you, I suppose. But this is what happens when I um, record a show while being sleep-deprived. But uh, anyway, I'll stop that free-form philosophical waxing for a moment and go on to uh, the next news story of sorts. So last Sunday was the premiere of the much-anticipated reimagining of the old Cosmos series, which had been hosted by the late Carl Sagan. Well, he didn't host it while he was dead. That would just be weird. Um, <coughs> the new version of Cosmos is hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And I guess I'll just start by, before I get on to the the uh, news story involving uh, Cosmos or the reaction to it, I'll give my own brief little review of the first episode, what I thought. Um, well, first and foremost, I love Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he does a great job of teaching science, even complex scientific ideas, in a straightforward, easy-to-comprehend way. So I, I think he's the perfect host for the show. Um, I thought the graphics were, or the, or the special effects were breathtaking. In a sense, it was everything you would hope it would be. Um, there was a little bit of cheese, little cheese. Uh, like, I think there was a moment near the beginning where uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson hops into his CGI spaceship, and it was just something like a little awkward about it. Um, and then there was also some animation here and there. And I think some of the episodes of the old Cosmos might have had some uh, animation too. Now, I'm not sure why I thought about the chosen uh, animation style. Maybe I'm being too picky. And they used animation to tell uh, the story of Giordano Bruno. He was a 16th century Italian friar and mathematician, philosopher, etc., and he was eventually burned at the stake for what the church viewed as heretical ideas. Um, I did a little bit of research on him after the fact just to brush up. It seems like his scientific ideas may have actually only played a small role in uh, why he was executed and that it was more his spiritual uh, beliefs that that got him in trouble. I think he embraced a kind of pantheism. Uh, pantheism is kind of a, a belief, not so much in a personal God, but in kind of uh, the idea of nature or the cosmos as God. Um, almost smacks of Eastern religion in a way. You know, this idea of one unifying uh force or as everything as uh, a part of the body of God in a sense. But he embraced um, the views of Copernicus and uh, he embraced the idea of heliocentrism that the sun was the uh, center of the universe and not the earth. So I guess it was kind of a double whammy. He uh, <laughs> held scientific views that were considered heretical and also spiritual views that were considered heretical. And uh, as I already uh, mentioned, he was eventually burned at the stake. So they um, tell the tale of Giordano Bruno through animation in the first episode of Cosmos. And it was kind of funny, you know, because I'm a non-believer. 
but even I'm like was kind of watching it going hmm I wonder if there is some kind of uh, agenda because <laughs> it seemed like they went out of their way to make the priest look really you know kind of dark and sinister but in a way maybe that's fair after all they burned a dude at the stake for um, his scientific and religious beliefs <laughs> so it's it might not be that far off um, but I remember thinking, I think I might have almost been a little worried as a non-believer um, that I didn't want the show to seem too biased, or too outwardly biased against religion. I, I would kind of rather just see the uh, the facts speak for themselves, you know, teach the, the science. Um, that way you can get the um, the facts out there without having to worry about being blamed uh, for having some kind of anti-religious agenda. But then again, you can't really argue with religious uh, or reason with religious fundamentalists anyway. And as the story I was alluding to um, will attest, it's kind of funny because it still blows my mind that Seth MacFarlane of uh, Family Guy fame, who I really like, and you know I'm a big fan of Real Time with Bill Maher and Seth MacFarlane is a reoccurring guest, and uh, and Seth MacFarlane is a non-believer, and um, I don't know if he identifies as an atheist or not, though. But he often lampoons uh, religion, and um, and apparently also has a passion uh, for science. So it's kind of funny as I was watching uh, the animation with like the evil priest. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if Seth Seth MacFarlane had anything to do with this part. Um, uh, but before I get on to that story, there was one really moving thing where I heard people talk about it, and I was like, yeah, 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 it can't be that emotional. It's probably being overhyped. But people talk about how moving it was when uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson talked about how he actually knew Carl Sagan personally. And it was really moving. Uh, it kind of gave me the chills. It was at the end of the episode. And he was talking about how he was uh, a 17-year-old kid. I think he said he was from Harlem originally. And he had written to um, Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan actually reached out and offered to meet with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Took him to his home and kind of mentored him. And... Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson was kind of talking about how not only did he learn what kind of scientist he wanted to be from Carl Sagan, but what type of person too. And I thought that was really cool, and that and it was emotional. But anyway, I'll go on to that story now. And this is from Salon, and it's a article by Andrew Leonard. I love the graphic. It has Neil deGrasse Tyson with a uh, communist sickle and hammer behind him. And it's entitled, Watch Out Cosmos, The Holy Inquisition Is Not Happy With You. The religious right attacks Neil deGrasse Tyson's agitprop for scientific materialism. I'll read a couple of paragraphs. If you're the kind of Christian liable to get upset when scientists deploy their annoying facts to prove crazy stuff, like their theories that the Earth is older than 6,000 years old, that the universe began with a Big Bang, then the resurrection of cosmos must be extremely irritating. First, those damn progressives stopped allowing the church to burn heretics at the stake. Now even Fox is broadcasting science documentaries. Truly, the quote the great Eric Erickson, we do live in a fallen, depraved world destined for the fire. 
Some of the poor souls oppressed by Neil deGrasse Tyson's return to the promised land, first pioneered by Carl Sagan, took to Twitter with their predictable grumblings. My favorite, dare hashtag cosmos. The origin of the universe actually is not mysterious. God had Moses write about it in the hashtag Bible. You should read it sometime. Uh, and, and then it goes on in that vein for a while. And, and I'm not sure if that was meant to be a satirical tweet or if the person was serious. Although there is a theory that Moses may have written um, some portions of the Torah. Uh, no, Moses did not sit down and write the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny, on a serious note, I know um, there's a portion of the uh, Pentateuch that covers Moses' death. So there's kind of a problem with the thinking that he uh, wrote the whole thing because um, how did he write it if he was dead? <laughs> but uh, anyway, that wasn't so serious. I'm still laughing. Pentateuch just being a fancy name for the uh, five books of Moses. So I was sleep deprived, and now I'm uh, drinking rum and coke. Jim Beam's devil cut, to be specific. Oh, actually, it's whiskey, not rum. Uh, and and no, that wasn't a uh, plug. But if Jim Beam wants to pay me for advertising, that would be awesome. Uh, but anyway... <clears throat> before my faculties completely deteriorate. I was watching the latest episode of Real Time with Bill Maher, and he kind of cracked me up while simultaneously making some awesome points about uh, people who take the Noah story literally. And so uh, I think I'll play that for you now. New rule. No one can blame me when I say this is a stupid country. When 60% of the adults in it think the Noah's Ark story is literally true. Which is why I'm already sick of seeing the ads for this floating piece of giraffe crap. <laughs> Although, the movie has been condemned by both Christians and Muslims, so it must be doing something right. <laughs> and they say it also may lose a fortune for the studio, which would put it in hot water with the Jews, too. <laughs> now... <laughs> <coughs> I don't know about the elephants on Noah's Ark, but the elephant in the room in 2014 is that we are now a full four centuries removed from the scientific revolution. Four centuries after Copernicus, after the time humans realized that through science, we could actually get a real answer to almost every question about our world, like where does the sun go at night? <laughs> and why does disease spread so quickly on a cruise ship? <laughs> And speaking of cruise ships, you know, I don't mind that the Noah story is impossibly childish. Okay, I do mind. I, what am I saying? I mind very much. I mean, seriously, people, you believe a man, Noah, lived to be 900 years old. That's what the Bible says. And when he was 500, he decided to have three kids, just like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> And when he was 600, he and his three 100-year-old sons <laughs> built a boat onto which, in one day, they loaded over three million animals, all of which were apparently indigenous to within five miles of the boat. <laughs> but get this, what the Christians who are now protesting this movie are upset about 
is that it doesn't take the biblical story literally enough. <gasps> They're mad because this made-up story doesn't stay true to their made-up story. <laughs> but the thing that's really disturbing about Noah isn't the silly. It's that it's immoral. It's about a psychotic mass murderer who gets away with it, and his name is God. Genesis says God was so angry with himself for screwing up when he made mankind so flawed, that he sent the flood to kill everyone, everyone, men, women, children, babies. What kind of tyrant punishes everyone just to get back at the few he's mad at? I mean, besides Chris Christie. Hey, God, you know you're kind of a dick when you're in a movie with Russell Crowe and you're the one with anger issues. <laughs> you know, conservatives are always going on about how Americans are losing their values and their morality. Well, maybe it's because you worship a guy who drowns babies. And then God's genius plan after he kills everyone is to repopulate the world with a new crop of the same assholes who pissed him off the first time. <laughs> with predictable results, he kills millions more. If we were a dog and God owned us, the cops would come and take us away. All right. Once again, Bill doing a great job of pointing out the absurdity of literal belief. And with that, I think I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, you can like the Facebook page. You can visit the Weekend Out YouTube channel. You can leave a review or subscribe through iTunes. You can check out the archives of the latest episodes on podbean.com. And if you're feeling generous, you can donate to the show's upkeep uh, as little as 99 cents by using the PayPal widget on the official Weekend Out Podbean page. Ah, oh yeah, we're also available where the royal we, me. <laughs> the show's also available on Stitcher now, and you can also follow The Weekend Out on Twitter, at The Weekend Out. All right, thank you. <laughs>